What a blessing it is to gather together and sing these songs as God's people, to see the beautiful picture of the gospel in baptism. You know, it's, uh, we, we have lots of analogies for gospel truth, lots of metaphors and figures that we could bring forward to show what the gospel is, what the gospel teaches. But the Lord has given us two. Uh, these are primary. These are the ways that the truths of the gospel are put on display. And they are baptism and the Lord's Supper. And so we thank God that this morning we get to be a part of both of those. We celebrate the Lord's Supper every Sunday, but we don't baptize every Sunday. And we're grateful that this week and next week we get to see that picture of death, burial, and resurrection with the Lord Jesus Christ. We've been identified with Him, and He is, for the Christian, our only hope in life and death. And uh, praise God, Michaela's only hope in life and death. So if you would go and go with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 9, verses 14 to 18, we are marching our way through Romans 9 through 11. And as I've said many times, when you go through a biblical book, you're, you know, we don't do topical series here on, on Sunday mornings, but we do uh, expositional series through books or chunks of books. And when you go through a book, the series is on that book, but you inevitably get these little series within the series. And uh, Romans 9 through 11 really constitutes its own little mini-series within this larger series on Romans. It is a distinct unit of text within this epistle. Paul's most well-known, well-read epistle in the New Testament. And we are towards the beginning of this section. Not at the very beginning, but we are still very much in the beginning as Paul works out his logic. And so let me just say this. With, especially with the Apostle Paul, often you have questions that are generated as we're going that don't get the kind of resolution that you would like. And that is inevitable when you're working through the logic of the biblical writer. Because the writer is himself going to build his logic. And so we want to track with that. We don't want to too much anticipate all that he's going to do in the future. We obviously, in order to explain what we're looking at, have to refer to those future texts, but we really do want to walk with the apostle through and understand piece by piece uh, the various arguments and the overall argument that he is making. So what have we seen so far in this mini-series, Romans 9 through 11? Well, first, in verses 1 to 5, Paul lays out a problem. He begins with a problem. And as I've said before, this is a problem that does not seem all that serious to us, but to someone in Paul's day, given the history that had preceded that time, given the significance of Christ and who exactly he is and was, and given Paul's role in redemptive history, this was a really big problem. This problem that he begins with in verses 1 to 5. Most Israelites have rejected Christ. That's the problem. Israel is God's people and they have by and large rejected God's salvation through Christ. The ark of salvation has set sail and most of Israel is not on it. It's an amazing thing. They have rejected salvation through Yeshua, the Lord's salvation. Not entirely. Paul is a testament to that. Remember Paul in Philippians 3, he, he outlines how he comes from the tribe of Benjamin. And we know that the apostles are Jews. And we know that many Jews were saved at Pentecost. And, and Jews continued to come to faith in Christ throughout the ministry of the apostles. So not entirely, but largely and corporately. Largely and corporately. Israel has rejected its Christ. Remember what Christ means. It means it's a, the Greek equivalent of Messiah. 
the Hebrew word Messiah. And Messiah means the anointed one of Israel. It, it, it has all the connotations of being the descendant of David. The, the real David, the true David, the expected David. Packed into the name, uh, the title of Christ is all the history of Israel and all of its significance. But Paul's response to this, specifically, he describes in verses 1 to 5 as being great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. I mean, you really could not say it any more emphatically than that to say, man, I am just really torn up about this. That is what Paul is feeling Great sorrow and unceasing anguish in his heart. You really could not say it more emphatically. They are his kinsmen according to the flesh. So for Paul, this is his family. He's out there ministering to Gentiles who historically have been enemies of his people. And all the while his people whom he loves have rejected Christ. So they are his kinsmen according to the flesh, first and foremost, and they are the recipients of God's many blessings. Most importantly, they are the recipients of God's many blessings. They are the descendants of the patriarchs and they are the relatives of Christ. Christ, as I said before, is and was Jewish. They are relatives of Christ according to the flesh. Remember, Christ has a divine nature and a human nature, and that is why Paul specifies in those opening verses that they are relatives of Christ according to the flesh. Christ is the God-man. We read about this incarnation in Philippians 2. He is both God and man. But insofar as he is man, his kinsmen are the Jewish people. So that's the first thing we saw as we entered into this little mini-series. And second, in verses 6 to 13, which we looked at last week, Paul defends the faithfulness of God's word of promise. So we've got a problem that sets itself up in those first few verses. And then from that, Paul goes to a defense of God's faithfulness. And in fact, that is needed logically. All of Israel, not all of Israel, most of Israel has rejected Christ, the nation corporately understood. That's a problem, and it calls God's word into question, at least on the surface. God's word of promise, God's faithfulness, his character. And Paul starts by saying in verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. And this statement that Paul gives in verse 6 of chapter 9 is really the thesis statement for all of 9 through 11. It is not as though the word of God has failed. Something maybe very unexpected in history has happened. Something that many have questions about. But the one thing you need to know when you leave chapters 9 through 11 is this. God's word has not failed. And although this is the thesis of the entire section, Paul deals with this specifically in verses 6 to 13. Does Israel's unbelief mean that God has been unfaithful? That's the question we looked at last week. And Paul's answer is, of course not. And he gives two reasons for that. First, not all Israel is Israel. So he wants to say first, let's be very careful to define our terms. Let's be very careful that we understand uh, on a deeper level what Israel is. And Paul uses, let me say this, the word Israel in various shades of that throughout chapters 9 through 11. And that's the reason why the, this section is so difficult to interpret. It's because there, it's multidimensional. The notion of Israel is multidimensional. Dimensional, And here we see that. Paul says, not all Israel is Israel. There are offspring of Abraham, and there are Abraham's true descendants, according to promise. Merely being a descendant of Abraham doesn't cut it. And the fact that much of Israel has proved to be mere offspring and not true children does not mean that God's word has failed. 
In fact, it has always been that way. You could go through the history of Israel and within larger Israel, which was dealt with corporately throughout the Old Testament, there was always within that larger corporate ethnic national entity, there was always true believing Israel. And we saw last week that God, uh, that Paul focuses on what God is doing with the birth of Isaac. That Isaac represents the child of promise and, and those who are of promise and Ishmael represents those who are of the flesh. So that was the first reason he gave. The second reason is this. What is happening is happening according to God's purpose of election. Now this may be a word, election, that uh, if you're visiting this morning or if... Um, You've just been coming for a short time. This idea of election, God choosing, and predestination and so forth. These ideas are either foreign to you or maybe very uncomfortable for you. But we're very much in the territory of seeing the significance of election in the Bible, of this particular doctrine. And it is this doctrine, it is this thing called election that Paul uses to defend God's faithfulness. It's the second part from last week of his argument. God chooses who he will save, just as he chose Jacob and rejected Esau. He did this before they were born and before they had done anything either good or bad. So is God unfaithful? No, not all Israel is truly Israel. And by the way, God has chosen according to the purpose of his great will. And we're going to see by the time we get to the end of chapter 11, all that Paul has in mind as he talks about God's electing purposes. So that's where we pick up today. I need to give that background just to set up where we are. We pick up today with election. But more specifically with an objection to election. Objections to election, to predestination, are not new. They go all the way back. They go all the way back. Before Paul even, they would have been present, but they all go all the way back, at least for us today, to this epistle to the Romans. And we see this stated in verse 14. As we get Paul immediately moving from Jacob I have loved, but Esau I have hated. God chose Jacob and rejected Esau. God, going even back, chose Isaac, not Ishmael. Immediately after Paul writes that, he says this in verse 14. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? So that's what we're going to be talking about this morning is this question of does election then mean that God is unjust? That there is injustice on God's part. Paul has just told his readers that God chooses one and rejects another. And he does this freely. Totally apart from human merit. God doesn't see anything, it was clear last week, either good or bad in those whom he chooses. He chooses, period, freely and according to his will. And remember, Paul is explaining why most Israelites have rejected Christ. That's the big idea. So don't get in the weeds. We're talking about Ishmael and Isaac and then talking about Esau and, and Jacob and then talking today about Pharaoh and all this. And we need to come up and remember what is Paul really talking about? He is talking about the fact that most Israelites have rejected Christ. Most of Israel in Paul's day were not chosen. Hear that. That's what Paul is saying in these chapters. Most of Israel in Paul's day, like Pharaoh, like Esau, and like Ishmael, were not chosen. Only the remnant were chosen. And Paul will get to that later. And let me just make a side note here about interpretation of these verses. Some have tried to say 
that Paul is not talking about individual election in these verses having to do with salvation, but rather Paul is talking about corporate election having to do with a group's role in history. So Esau for Edom and Jacob for Israel and today Pharaoh for Egypt. So God, God's election here does not have to do with sinners and, 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 and salvation. It has to do with God electing within the confines of history in terms of historical destiny. That is an argument that many have put forward. But I just want to, I'm not going to belabor this too much because it will, will really get us down into the weeds. But I think it has to be said, the context here makes clear that salvation is in view. Let me just give you a few little clues to that. And there's much more that could be said here. But I just want to give you a few things that show us that salvation of individuals is in view. So here are three little clues. First, chapter 9, verse 3. Notice... Paul is talking about salvation when he says, For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. What is in view? Israelites. Remember, they are Israelites. They are Israelites. What is, what is in view for Paul? What's in view for Paul is that most of his kinsmen, people, real people, individuals, most of his kinsmen are going to hell. Most of his kinsmen are accursed and cut off from Christ. Accursed, devoted to destruction and cut off from Christ. So we clearly have salvation in view at least going into the chapter. And then let me fast forward to chapter 11, verses 5 and 7. This is where Paul is headed. So he says this, So too, at the present time, there is a remnant chosen by grace. So there's a group of people, a group of individuals in Israel or Israelites who have trusted Christ. And they were chosen by grace. They are a remnant. And then Paul goes on in verse 7 to say, What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. That language implies individual sinners and salvation. The rest were hardened so that they did not come to Christ. And going back to chapter 9, verse 3, they were accursed and cut off from Christ. And then let me just point out one more thing. Romans 9, verses 22 and 23 talks about people as vessels prepared for destruction or prepared for glory. That is most certainly, destruction and glory most certainly imply salvation. So we're not just talking about, for those who take this passage to just be about historical destiny of peoples, we're not just talking about election uh, on, that, on that very historical human plane. We're talking about God's decrees involving individuals unto destruction or unto glory. Salvation is very much in view. Okay, I won't say anything more. I just want to sort of lay that out there because it is important. If you spend any time reading commentaries on this passage, you'll see uh, that that is important. So what is the objection that Paul is dealing with in our passage for today? What, what, is, what is he dealing with? And it's this simple. God's not fair, right? That's what Paul is dealing with. Does that sound familiar? God's not fair. Isn't it interesting that Paul is dealing with the very objection to election that we hear in our own day? The same thing. That Paul heard it then. Hold on. God choosing some and not others. God choosing to save some people but rejecting others. Well, that's just not fair. That's exactly what the people in Paul's day were saying. And that's what people say today. And I just want to give you some caution. If, if for you, predestination and election are something you have rejected. And you've used this language before. 
Well, if God chooses some and not others, that would not be fair. God would not be just. Beware. Be careful. Because right on the other side of that is blasphemy. Because you're saying essentially the same thing. And if it is the case, as I think Paul argues today in our passage, and next week we'll see it even more in your face. If Paul is saying that about the Lord and you say, if that is true, God is unjust, you speak as a pagan, as an unbeliever, as a blasphemer against the justice of God. So just beware. Let me give you a quote here from John MacArthur as he kind of explains the way this gets thought about today. That accusation, God is unfair, has been raised throughout the history of the church and is still heard today when God's election and predestination are proclaimed. How can God elect one person and reject another before they are even born. In light of human wisdom and standards, especially in democratic societies where all people are considered equal before the law, the ideas of election and predestination are repulsive and unacceptable. We've seen that. Those doctrines, it is claimed, could not possibly characterize a God who is truly just and righteous. That is the way people talk about this. That is the way, I mean, we've all heard that and probably many of us have said that. I did not grow up reformed. I did not grow up with an understanding of predestination and came to that uh, kicking and screaming a little in my early 20s as I came to understand what uh, texts like what we're looking at today have to say, but not just these texts, but others as well. So if you've ever thought that, or if you're thinking that this morning, great, here's Paul's response to you, right? Here's the apostolic response if you've ever thought, man, that whole idea of God choosing some and not others is just unfair, Paul's going to respond to you today on that. So the title for the sermon this morning is God's Righteousness Stands. Last week we saw that God's Word stands, and now Paul wants to explain how God's righteousness stands. So God's faithfulness and justice are being defended in light of the fact that the mass of Israel has rejected the Messiah. So if you would stand with me for the reading of God's Word. And we're going to read Romans 9, verses 1 to 18. But our, our text for today is verses 14 to 18. So this is the word of God. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. But it is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because there is offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. About this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. So that's where we ended last week, and that of course brings about this response. 
what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. Paul just wants to shoot that down with a bazooka. By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You can go ahead and be seated. This is God's truth. Let's, let's bow our heads and pray to the Lord. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for making your purposes so clear to us, Lord. And yet at the same time, we recognize our, our finite minds just cannot wrap our, 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 themselves around these, these great mysterious truths, God. They're beyond us. Your ways are higher than ours and your ways are inscrutable. As Paul will say, who has known the mind of the Lord or who has been his counselor? Lord, you are far beyond our thinking. Help us, Father, to conform our thinking to your word. And as Augustine said many, many centuries ago, that uh, there should be faith-seeking understanding. We trust your word as it is received, uh, not because we fully understand it, but because it is your word. And then we seek to understand it throughout our lives. Father, we thank you for what you've revealed here. And we just ask God that you would humble us and and show us your kindness, your mercy. Lord, that we would leave here this morning just being lifted up as Christians by your great mercy. And, And Lord, for those who aren't saved this morning, that they would be drawn to Christ. That they would see that a life apart from Christ is indeed accursed and Uh, It is a life of destruction. It will end in utter ruin and sorrow and tribulation and utter despair. God, I pray that you would show them the glories of Jesus and that they would see just the the awe of of your mind, of your plan. God, we pray this morning that all of our hearts would be lifted up to, to see Christ and to know you better, to walk with you more faithfully. God, would you guide us now as we go through this text? In Jesus' name, amen. So Paul gives two basic responses to this objection about God's justice or righteousness. And that's the same Greek word translated two different ways, justice or righteousness. And they have to do with these two things. Here are the points if you're writing them down. Uh, Paul's response has to do with these two things, God's mercy in electing and God's glory in hardening. God's mercy in electing, God's glory in hardening. So let's look at the first, God's mercy in electing. And for that, we're going to go to verses 14 to 16. So if you would go there with me uh, at this point. He writes, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Does God's election render him unjust, unfair, unrighteous? Paul's response, which we've seen before in this letter, is absolutely not. There is no stronger negative. Paul's reaching down into his bag and he's finding the strongest possible negative that he can. And that's what he uses here. Absolutely not. God forbid. By no means. That would be utterly unthinkable. There are many ways that this can be translated But we've seen Paul use this argumentative tactic throughout his letters so far. Absurd things that are said to those, Paul asks the question and he says, by no means. Like, for example, should we go on sinning so that grace may abound as we enter into chapter 6? No, of course not. By no means. 
the same thing is present here. It is unthinkable. It is in God's very nature to be just. And the thought of him being unjust is the height of irrationality and blasphemy. It, 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 your eyes just go crossed when you, God unjust, to be God is to be just. Part of the problem with all the, the pantheon of gods, uh, of, the, of the Romans and the Greeks and others, is they were engaged in all sorts of just unjust activity. They were engaged in all kinds of licentious activity even. Demons, they were demonic. We find that throughout Scripture, that the gods of the nations are demons. No, this God is the true God. He is holy and perfect, and He is just. Genesis 18, 25, we remember when we were going through that, in that passage, uh, Abraham is talking to God about Sodom and Gomorrah. And he says, shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? Now, Abraham says that because it's a no-brainer. He's saying, well, you're the judge of all the earth. Of course, the judge of all the earth must do, will do what is just. Psalm 71, 19 declares it this way. Your righteousness or justice, O God, reaches the high heavens. There is nowhere where God's injustice could be found because he is intrinsically, perfectly, and always just. In fact, Paul doesn't even like saying these words. He doesn't even like to say this. And we saw this back in chapter 3, verse 5, when he also dealt with God's justice. Remember what he says back then. I'll, I'll quote it for you. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? Immediately after he says that, he says, I speak in a human way. He doesn't even like saying those words. They're not even his own words, but he doesn't even like to say them. They're so icky. They're so blasphemous. They're so contrary to truth and reality and worship. Of course, God is just. And then here in our text, Paul goes on to give the first part of his answer in verses 15 to 16. So he's got two parts to his answer, and the first comes in verses 15 to 16. So where does he turn? Man, God's justice is on the line. God's righteousness is on the line. Where does Paul turn? Does he turn to a philosophical argument to support God's justice? Well, if you were following many apologists in our day and before, you would think, yes, that's where Paul should go. Does he start with a generally recognized understanding of justice among human beings and then apply that to God? No, he does neither of those things. The apostle turns to the word of God. He turns to scripture. Quoting Exodus 33, 19, he says this, For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. Here's the problem. And you have to get this. This is, this is a big idea here. We have to get this in view. Justice is the wrong word. Justice is not the issue. When we are talking about a fallen world, sinful human beings, those who are in Adam, anything good that God would do for us or towards us is not a matter of justice. It's not a matter of justice. Paul is essentially saying, look, the argument is twisted. The mindset is twisted. The presuppositions are twisted. We're not talking about justice when we're talking about the salvation of sinners. The problem with this objection to election is that it has a wrong view of what human beings deserve. So let me give you a quote from one commentator, Thomas Schreiner. He says this, human beings are apt to criticize God 
for excluding anyone. Listen to what he says. But this betrays a theology that views salvation as something God ought to bestow on all equally. Listen, folks, when we talk about salvation, there is no ought on behalf of the Lord. Here's the problem. When it comes to salvation, there is absolutely no must or ought on the part of God. Not at all. God owes human beings nothing except judgment. Period. No, 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 no. Exclamation point. To infinity and beyond, as my son and I used to say. I love you to infinity and beyond. Exclamation points to infinity and beyond. All deserve wrath. All deserve destruction. All deserve condemnation. But listen, listen. That's not what happens. Listen to to this message about this God. All deserve wrath. All deserve judgment. All deserve condemnation. But that's not what happens. Instead, God actually saves some of us. And listen, it is an innumerable number in heaven. One day, it will be innumerable. And of course, as many as the stars of heaven and the sand of the sea. He doesn't just save a handful. He's going to save an innumerable number of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. God actually saves some of us an innumerable amount, and he doesn't just save us. Listen to this. He determines to save us before we were ever born. He secures our salvation in his own mind. He secures our salvation with his own decree. He determines to save us before we were born. And this secures our salvation even from ourselves. Even from me messing it up. He secures it by his own free and sovereign decree. Let me say this about election. This is what's so sad about many in the church of Jesus Christ who who reject the notion of predestination or election. What is so sad about this for our brothers and sisters who, who have stumbled over this doctrine and who have pushed it to the side is that in the New Testament, its function is to lift up the hearts of God's people. Its applicatory function is that the saints of God, Christians, would be further solidified and secured and assured in who we are in Christ and that nothing can take it away. Not even our own wills. So there is great security and great assurance to be had in this glorious doctrine from the Bible. This is not just abstract stuff. This is not just theology for theology's sake. This is about people living the Christian life well. And hoping in God as their rock. Our security, mentally speaking, subjectively realized, is what is at stake. The appropriate word when talking about election. This is the big idea I'm getting to here. The appropriate word when talking about election is not justice, but mercy. It's mercy. And that's where Paul goes. To God's declaration to Moses that he is a God who shows mercy to whom he will. He does this freely. And if verse 15 is true, God will have mercy on whom he will have mercy. And he will have compassion on whom he will have compassion. If that's true, if verse 15 is true, then verse 16 must also be true. And so now let me read that verse. So then, so then... It depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. Now, I love this verse. I love that the Lord has provided this verse for us. Because one of the things that oftentimes uh, people who 
who reject our brothers and sisters in Christ who, who really don't like the doctrine of election or unconditional election apart from merit that God does it freely according to his own will and not according to anything he sees in us. They will often talk about how, of course, God does not save us based on works. God doesn't do anything for us based on works. And, and, the, and when they talk about election, they say God chooses based on foreseen faith. I'm going to read the verse again. Verse 16. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. If faith is not to be housed in the will, then I don't know where it goes. It's an internal thing. Faith and love and joy. We talk about these as being internal. They come from the heart. They're they're exertions of the will. So Paul doesn't just say here, look, it doesn't depend on human striving and exertion or whatever. the, The word is literally running. It doesn't depend on human running, but on God who has mercy. He says also before that it does not depend on human will. That's the plain teaching of God's word on this question. It's as plain as day. As plain as the leaves on a sunny day does not depend on will or exertion, but on God's will of mercy. Mercy is destroyed where it is based on human merit. Nothing internal or external. Listen to this. Nothing internal or external can move God. As medieval theologians would call him the first mover. No act of our own will, no act of our own soul can move the first mover, can move God to do anything. God does it, as Ephesians says, according to the counsel of his will. So back to the question about God's justice, does election show God to be unjust? Answer, no. Because God choosing to save anyone is not a matter of justice, but a matter of mercy. That's where Paul's at here. So now let's turn to the second part of Paul's response to this objection as we finish up this morning. God's glory in hardening. That's where Paul goes next. It just gets more and more controversial. It just gets more and more difficult to swallow. So look with me at verses 17 to 18. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You know, these are hard verses. It is not surprising to me that interpreters have really just sort of wrestled with these and that many have just said, uh-uh, uh-uh. And some, some uh, non-evangelical interpreters have just said, Paul's just way off base here. Paul's just wrong. Paul's just wrong. They, Paul does not meet their philosophical assumptions And so Paul, the apostle, is just wrong. And because they have a a, a poor view of Scripture, they can just admit that and move on and have their own kind of theology based on their own reason or whatever else. But many evangelical interpreters who love the Word of God, who believe the Word of God, get to this point and just start doing all kinds of weird stuff, trying to, to... reinterpret and and move the words around and and go back into these portions in Exodus that Paul quotes and try to find substantiation for something other than what Paul is so clearly stating here in these verses. So, once again, Paul turns to Scripture in his response to this objection. And once again, he goes to Exodus. He cites chapter 9, verse 16. The scene is the ten plagues. So there we are, plagues coming down on Egypt. We're right in the middle of the plagues. Moses goes to Pharaoh, you remember from the very beginning, and says, the Lord has said, let my people go out into the wilderness to worship me, to serve me. And Pharaoh says, who is the Lord? This is the Pharaoh of mighty Egypt. This is the Pharaoh of, of the Egypt of the pyramids. I mean, the Pharaohs were considered gods. And now all those elaborate tombs, 
depict what would happen to them after their death. They'd be going on and sort of they had these little servants that they would put in there with them. And so they would have their servants even after death. This is the mighty Pharaoh. Who is the Lord that I should listen to him? No, I'm not letting our slaves go free. And in fact, they're going to work even harder because you're asking. So God begins to bring the plagues of his wrath, his judgment down upon Egypt. And Pharaoh continues to refuse to let God's people Israel go into the wilderness to serve him. And he says he will. And then he goes back on his word. He wants the plagues to stop. He begs Moses, just beg the Lord. Tell him, I want this to stop. I'll I'll let you do it. And then he goes back on his word. His heart is stubborn and unyielding. And God tells Moses to tell Pharaoh what we read here. So that's the context for these words, what we read here. For this very purpose, I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So what's going on here? What's going on? The big idea, I think, in this section is glory. That's the big idea that Paul is driving at. It is glory. God is saving his people Israel, and he is judging Pharaoh and the Egyptians. He is showing his power and exalting his name above all so-called gods. Remember in the ancient world, there were many, 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 many gods, so-called. And the demons we know that fell were very active in establishing themselves as objects of worship in the minds. And there's all sorts of mystery surrounding uh, the names of angels in the New Testament, principalities and powers and dominions and rulers. I mean, there, there's much going on in the unseen world. And we read in Daniel, there's, there are angels overseeing nations and so forth. So all of that is happening. And then on the ground, all of that is happening in the unseen world. And then on the ground, there's the worship of all these false gods. And the Lord is showing his power and his reality over all those so-called gods. The Lord is God and there is no other. We see this emphasis of God's renown in Exodus chapter 15, uh, which Jared read to you earlier. This is the song of Moses. So let me read these verses again, verses 14 to 16. The peoples have heard. This is Moses and the people worshiping the Lord in the wilderness because of what God had done in taking them out of Egypt. So listen to what he says. The peoples have heard. They tremble. Pangs have seized the inhabitants of Philistia. Now are the chiefs of Edom dismayed. Trembling seizes the leaders of Moab. All the inhabitants of Canaan have melted away. Terror and dread fall upon them. Because of the greatness of your arm, they are still as a stone. So what was the effect that the plagues in Egypt and the, and the bringing out of the Israelites and the bringing the waters, parting the sea so the Israelites can go through and then bringing the waters back down on the Egyptians in their mighty chariots? What was the result of that? What was the purpose of that? That God's name might be proclaimed among the peoples. God was exalted among all of these peoples in the ancient world. And then we read in Joshua 2, verses 9 to 10, Rahab, the harlot living in Jericho, listen to what she says to the spies. She says, I know, I know that the Lord has given you the land. And that the fear of you has fallen upon us and that all the inhabitants of the land melt away before you. Kings, armies melting away before Israel. For we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea before you when you came out of Egypt. Glory. That's what God is doing in history. He is glorifying himself. If we don't have mercy and glory as fundamental building blocks for our theology, it's going to fall apart. It's not going to be biblical. 
And we must have mercy and glory as fundamental building blocks of our understanding of election. Or we will question God's justice. Mercy and glory. And Paul's point here is that the electing purposes of God are for His glory. And not just when He chooses to save some. And here we are, the more controversial bit. Not just when he chooses to save some, but also when he rejects some. Also when he rejects some. All election is for the purpose of God glorifying his name. In acceptance and in rejection. In choosing, and to use Paul's language earlier, in hating. And Pharaoh is the perfect illustration of this. That's what Paul is doing. He's using Pharaoh as an illustration. God raised him up, put him on the scene of history. You know, Pharaoh there thinking he's just done it all himself. And all the while, God was working in, in the ancestors of that particular Pharaoh. God was working in that Pharaoh's life. God was working in that Pharaoh as he came to power. God was working and bringing him to that point. And God had brought him through those early plagues. It even says there in Exodus that uh, he had not wiped out Pharaoh yet. He had not wiped out the Egyptians yet. Why? Because God was working towards the purpose of glorifying his might among the nations. God raised him up. Put him on the scene of history for showing his power and making his name known through the rejection and rebellion of the Pharaoh of Egypt. So what about this hardening business as we finish up this morning? Hardening. We are told throughout Exodus chapter 4 to 14 that God hardened Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. And just simply that Pharaoh's heart was hardened. So we're told that all throughout that narrative, verses, uh, chapters 4 to 14. God did it, Pharaoh did it, and it happened. So what do we make of all of that? I mean, did God harden Pharaoh's heart because Pharaoh had already hardened it? Or did Pharaoh harden his heart because God had already hardened it? These are the sorts of questions people you know, get into and, and discuss. But Paul's emphasis, notice this, go back to Paul. What is Paul saying here? Paul's emphasis is on God's sovereignty over Pharaoh's heart. And that is why it says, I have raised you up. Do you see that? The focus is on God's agency, it's on God's initiative, it's on God's act of raising Pharaoh up. Pharaoh had a purpose to play in God's plan. God's rejection of Pharaoh led to his salvation of Israel and his glorification over the gods of the peoples. That is pure and simple what is going on. We see a similar situation with Judas, don't we? You know, Pharaoh's not the only person that uh, causes us this sort of philosophical, theological uh, problem as we think through it, but also Judas. I mean, did God ordain that Judas would betray Christ because he foresaw Judas's heart, or, or did Judas do that because God ordained? He's called the son of perdition. These are the kinds of things that just really boggle our minds. But we have to go to the same point here with Paul. I have raised you up. The same, I think, we would conclude about Judas. And yet, as Exodus makes clear, and here's the important part that we need to tie back into it. As Exodus makes clear, and as the Gospels make clear, both Pharaoh and Judas are responsible for their own sin. Now, that's where we can't penetrate. You cannot get a spear or a sword sharp enough to penetrate that. It's not going to happen. 
It's not going to happen this side of heaven. And I'm convinced that the reason so many people reject these doctrines or push them to the side is because they think that because they can't penetrate it, it must not be true. But there's so much that we don't understand about the Lord and about his workings in people's hearts and about people's hearts. There is so much we don't understand. I mean, even after all of these chapters, Paul gets to the end of chapter 11 and he says what he says about God's inscrutable ways and his mind. Who has known the mind of the Lord? What we must conclude is what Scripture concludes. And what we must take to be true is what is clearly here on the surface as we read these verses. It is not according to human will or exertion. And it was God who raised Pharaoh up. Let me give you a quote from Calvin. Of course, it's probably most fitting to conclude with a quote from Calvin as this whole, this whole uh, doctrine has been called Calvinism. Uh, I remember when I was applying for various churches as a we were leaving Edinburgh and looking at churches that frequently you would read on job postings um, for pastoral ministry. You uh, would read, you know, sometimes, and not a Calvinist. <laughs> so I didn't apply to that one. But, and not a Calvinist. And not a Calvinist. So this, this whole idea that we've been discussing, this, this is, this is um, Pauline. This is, this is Paul. We've been reading Paul. We haven't, we haven't looked at Calvin at all. But I do want to end with this quote from that esteemed theologian of the 16th century who I think in many ways has uh, given the church a right understanding of the Lord's word. Here's what Calvin says. That our mind may be satisfied with the difference which exists between the elect and the reprobate. That would be like Pharaoh, rejected. And may not inquire for any cause higher than the divine will. His purpose was to convince us of this, that it seems good to God, it seems good to God to illuminate some that they may be saved and to blind others that they may perish. For we ought particularly to notice these words, to whom he wills and whom he wills. Beyond this, he allows us not to proceed. That's it. There's a, there's a great amount of humility and trust that is packed into the embrace of these doctrines. Because there is a point at which we simply intellectually can't proceed. So the conclusion must stand as it does in verse 18. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Our job as Christians is to believe it and to humbly seek more and more to understand God's purposes through Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your truth and we confess that these are difficult things to Settle in our minds, Lord, especially in our culture. And I would say, especially as a father, these are difficult, difficult truths to, to fully grasp and understand. And even just to come to terms with, Lord, it's, it's, it's not up to us. We can't make it happen in ourselves and we can't make it happen in our kids but God we know much about you and we know about you supremely through the cross we know that you are a saving God you are a loving God so much so that you, the eternal God, sent your only Son to not just get beat up by humans, but to bear your wrath and hatred 
against sin. So God, surely we can rest in the wisdom of your ways. Surely we can rest in your faithfulness and your justice and your goodness and your mercy. Even when we can't fully explain it or understand it all. So God, we pray for help that you would grant us mercy. We pray for our kids and our loved ones who do not know you. Like Paul, we grieve over their lostness and we ask that you would be merciful, that you would save them. God, we know that you ordained to do things through prayer. And so we pray for all of our little ones, for all of our kids, especially, and all of our grown kids, Lord, many in our church who have grown children who do not know the Lord, who do not know you, God. They, they, they don't trust you. They live for themselves, live for idols. God, would you be merciful to the children of Christian parents in this church, we ask. and We, we praise you, God. We thank you for the Lord's Supper that we get to see this other picture of uh, the truth that we feast on Christ and He is our our nourishment and He is our lifeblood. Uh, We pray that we would, through this time, worship you. In Jesus' name, amen.